I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, the phrase, uh, snatching victory from the jaws of defeat. Have you heard of that phrase before? Is that something you've heard of? It's basically the idea that, you know, a sports team or your, your, your person that you're cheering for, they're down, it doesn't look like they're going to win, and then all of a sudden something happens. Somebody hits a home run in the ninth inning or somebody scores with just seconds to go and it kind of turns the game and they're able to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. Perhaps a lesser known saying is the exact opposite of that phrase. Uh, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. Have you heard of that saying? That's where a team that is up or uh, someone that is about to win is about to uh, just achieve the success they've always wanted and something horrible happens and it's their fault. And they don't win. They don't achieve the success that they wanted to. If you've never heard of that phrase, if that's something new to you and it's hard to imagine, let me give you the story of Matt Emmons. Matt Emmons knows what it means to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Matt Emmons is an American air rifle shooter and is Olympic quality, has qualified and participated at the Olympics for a number of years. And back in 2004, Emmons participated and competed in the three-position event. That's where participants shoot from their stomachs, their knees, and their feet at a target 50 meters away. Going into his final shot, Emmons was the clear winner. All he had to do was make a mediocre shot, an easy shot. He didn't even have to hit a bullseye to win. He just had to hit the target, and he would have had gold. And instead, he shot someone else's target. He got a score of zero. It was one lane over, so it wasn't off by much, but it was enough. He finished eighth. He went from first to eighth place just by shooting at the wrong target. I don't think that saying, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory, is just limited to the world and arena of sports. I think that's true for the arena of faith as well. Because I think sometimes people can lose sight of the target that they are aiming at. The question is, how does that happen? How does it happen that we lose sight of the target of what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself to help live a life that not only follows Jesus but helps others follow Jesus with everything we have and everything we are. How does it happen that Christians will do that? Well, we know the story of the parable of the sower where Jesus says that um, the sower goes out to sow seeds and that some soil's hard and people don't receive the word. Uh, some, that's uh, soil is hearts, of course. And some people don't respond. Some people do respond, uh, but it doesn't get enough roots and so it dies and, and so on and so on. One of the things that Jesus says that I think is um, remarkable to me and has actually been a struggle for me is the ones where the soil 
is surrounded by uh, rocks and weeds, and the seed falls into that place, and it grows up for a time, but then the things of the world are a distraction, and they seem better than what Jesus is saying, follow and do, and those people do not produce a harvest. That seed does not produce a harvest. When I think about that, I, I kind of struggle with, well, how would that look in real life? That someone would say, I found Jesus and I love Jesus, but this is better and I want this more. How does that actually work? I think one of the ways that it works in life, one of the reasons why people lose their hope when life gets dark it's that it's based on this idea. What happens in life isn't fair. All of us have a moral compass that says good deeds should be rewarded and bad deeds should be punished. Does that make sense? We grew up with stories like that as kids. We teach them to our kids. We even demonstrate that to our kids. When they do well, they're rewarded. When they... When they um, disobey, we punish them. Good deeds are rewarded, bad deeds are unrewarded. And we know as Christians that Jesus says our life on this side of life is to take up our cross and follow Him. We accept that. But that becomes exceedingly hard to do when we watch others get away with sin. And that becomes harder when it seems like their wicked behavior, the way that they live outside of Jesus, living selfishly, living for themselves, isn't punished. But it seems to be rewarded. They seem to gain more than we would as righteous people. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever looked at people going, wait, they did this and it was wrong, but it seems like they're getting rewarded. I think you see that early on in school where you're assigned the dreaded class project or group project, right? And someone in your group doesn't take their lion's share of the work. And yet it seems like they get most of the credit. Oh, that's frustrating. I wish I could say that that just happens in grade school, right? But when you get older and you get into the workforce, sometimes you're assigned a team where, you're, to be honest, you know who the weakest link is. And the weakest link, it's not that they are trying to do it and can't. It's that they aren't trying at all. And they're refusing to help and refusing to participate. But they're rewarded in some way. How many times have you seen that a person gets an advancement or a person gets a job opportunity or a promotion or a raise, not because of what they do, but because of who they know? You apply for a job, and you're the best candidate for the job, but they hire their relative. 
to take the role and responsibility. All those things are so frustrating. And when it gets worse and worse and worse, like when it gets clearly into the area of how could they do that? We all agree that that's wrong. How come they're not, they're, they're not being punished and instead being rewarded? That is some of the most frustrating times as a believer. Because we have a God who is all-powerful, right? We have a God who sees all. We have a God who can do something. Why does it seem that righteousness is punished and wickedness gets away with it and benefits, profits? Have you ever seen this in life? I've seen this in life. We can talk about it on a personal scale, but I think what hits home the most is the largest scale. Um, my uh, our son is uh, getting ready for college. He's wrapping up his high school career and getting ready for college. And as I was researching this uh, idea of you know education and just the cost of education, I came across an article um, from. Uh, a Harvard school, a, Har- a division of, of Harvard schools that, where a professor said, you know, it, it seems like kids who succeed and graduate from college, it's not based on intelligence. It's based on the resources of the family that sent them. So, this was the quote of the, of the professor. Poor, smart kids struggle to graduate while rich, dumb kids get the degree. Is that fair? No. It's absolutely not fair. And as a matter of fact, as we're going through all the application process, it became clear to me that they don't always take you just from your grades. They take, can you afford to go to this kind of school? That doesn't seem fair. Seems like the rich are getting ahead just because they're rich. No, that's not wrong. Not everyone has the same opportunities in life. Not everyone has the same uh, doors presented to them. Uh, I, I get that, especially when we look at a worldwide uh, situation where there's, you know, there's no access to things a- across the world. But isn't it also true that the rich seem to get away with more than the poor? Perhaps you're old enough to remember the housing crisis of 2008. Do you remember that? Housing crisis was a time when uh, banks were so interested in making a sale on uh, selling mortgages to people that they lowered the standards of what it might mean to qualify as a homeowner so that people who didn't have the resources should anything change in the financial picture wouldn't be able to pay it. Well, a banker would know that the financial market's going to change. It's volatile. It's up and down like a teeter-totter, right? They know that. And they went ahead and made a market for selling subprime mortgages to people that when the market did change, It created such a fluctuation all around the world that all of a sudden banks were going into default and individuals were defaulting on their mortgages. And guess who got bailed out? 
not the individuals, but the banks. The banks profited while individuals who never should have been sold that product in the first place suffered. And even people who were in a good mortgage and had the means to pay for their mortgage, they're all of a sudden upside down on their home where their mortgage is now more than what their home is worth because they got adjustable rate mortgages. That frustrated me. And of course, we all just went through COVID. Felt like it hit everyone fairly equally, right? No matter your societal status. And as a matter of fact, every leader around the world saying, this is what we must do. We must band together. We're going to follow these same things. We're all in this together. But worldwide, not just in our country, but worldwide, those with the means, like politicians, athletes, and entertainers, said one thing in public and did another thing in private. They wouldn't follow their own rules for in-home gatherings and limitations. They would continue to do business as normal. And when the vaccine was finally available and they were saying, listen, we need to get the most vulnerable vaccinated first, who lined up first? Those with the means who quietly and silently got not only them vaccinated as a servant of the public, but also their families, their children, those who were personally connected to them, while those who were in nursing homes were dying. It's also interesting out of COVID that Nearly 500 people became billionaires. And the richest among them doubled their fortune over the last two years. Meanwhile, the greatest majority of humanity is worse off. Regular people suffered through the pandemic. While the rich seem to Say one thing, do another, ignore their own rules. As a matter of fact, uh, Gabriella Boucher, the executive director of Oxfam International, a worldwide organization dealing with poverty around the globe, said this, uh, if, the richest ten, if the 10 richest people on the planet were to surrender 99% of the wealth they gained during the pandemic, we would have enough money to vaccinate the world country would not have to buy vaccines. They would have been paid for free. And they would have the money to invest in having universal health care everywhere. What good is following the rules when it seems like following the rules gets punished? While those who have the means and those who have the wealth and those who have the resources to get around the rules seem to get rewarded. Why is that? What is the good of godliness? God could do something. And yet here are his people wondering how are we going to live and survive? Where's our blessing? Where's our provision? And others 
seem to live a carefree life, a life without God. As a matter of fact, flaunting that we would need a crutch like faith. There are times in every Christian's life when they will come to a place and they wonder, what is the good of godliness? I could have so much more. And they wonder, am I shooting at the wrong target? If you ever felt that, if you've ever wondered, what is the good of godliness? And why is living for God the best way to live and you've ever struggled with that, then you're in a good place. Because I think that's a universal question for every uh, God-fearing believer. And as a matter of fact, um, my favorite psalm in all of the scriptures, the psalmist shares that exact same challenge that he had in his life. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me in them to Psalm chapter 73. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, you can follow along on the screen, but let me do encourage you that if you do have a Bible, you do have a, a Bible app on your phone, you can take it out and you can follow along and you can make notes uh, as, as we uh, go through this, just this rich scripture together. What good is righteousness when it's those who have that are rewarded, especially when they are unrighteous, especially when they are wicked? what the psalmist asked in Psalm 73. He said, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They, the wicked, have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth, and therefore their people turn to them. And drink up waters in abundance. <laughs> they say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. And have washed my hands in innocence. All day long, I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. This is a deep, deep revelation of a worship leader in ancient Israel who is clearly struggling with where's the care that I sing about in the worship services? Where's the provision for me? 
I've spoken out for you. I've served you. I've listened to you. And yet, it's other people who are being blessed. People who defy you. People who deny you. People who say, where's your God now? And they're drawing a crowd. They're the ones that are the influencers. They're the ones who are shifting and changing culture. In other words, what the author here is feeling is what we often feel. The cost is too high. The cost is too high, and I can't keep paying it. God, I expect you to do something, and you haven't. At the very least, he's saying, am I missing out? And at the very worst, he says, I know I am, and I think I'm out. I think I'm out. I see what they get. They get cared for. They have a plan. They have a future. When uh, trouble hits, they have options. I want those things. I want to know that I'll be able to retire when I'm older. And when I retire, I want to have a healthy body so I can do the things I want to do. Where's the reward for righteousness? All he did was suffer. It seemed to him that People who had and were flaunting it had no humility. They had complete self-dependence. They were self-reliant. They had no worries about who, what their heart was like or the burden of guilt. They could speak their mind. They could just do whatever and people would follow them and they wouldn't question them. And they want it all and they can get it all. without God. And so the psalmist is asking, God, why am I being forced to miss out on the good life? I get that. I get that feeling. You get that feeling too. But then um, something happens Something happens to the psalmist that reminds him of something he had forgotten. And we see that in verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin, how suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. The psalmist walked into church. And the songs they sang and the message that they heard for the day from the liturgy all of a sudden clicked that there's more to life than this life right now. And he took a larger view, and he looked at what happened to nations that decided to defy God and stand in His face. 
And he would have stories as the people of God of what it meant to try and stand against God. Perhaps he thought back to the story of uh, Goliath and the Philistines as they stood challenging them, where are your gods? Send us your best warrior, your champion of your, of your, uh, uh, of your, uh, of your gods. And David comes out, shepherd kid. Oh, this is unmatched. Where are you sending me? David said, You defy the armies of the living God, and He has given you into my hands. If you grew up in church, you know the story. One stone. David went, uh, killed Goliath. Goliath fell, and David chopped off his head, and the whole Philistine army was routed. Maybe he thought back to victories and stories that he had learned sitting around the campfire of the exodus of what happened when pharaoh refused to let his god's people go thought he could go toe-to-toe with god and pharaoh didn't just lose but he lost everything and god rescued his people effortlessly psalmist realized when he heard those stories and was reminded that there's more to life than this life, that there's really no value in temporal things, and that one day this world, what we see here, will fade. Some of you that are older understand this better than some of uh, you that are younger. I'm not going to let you choose which camp I'm in. You just, you know, but you know this because you've seen the world change more rapidly in the last century than change has happened at all. Some of you have lived through wars. Some of you were young, but you remember the wars to end all, the war to end all wars. And you remember how things have developed to this point where now there's cars and television and the internet and how things can rapidly change and how things disappeared from that generation where you were growing up, where you were a child, and now everything is different. Because this world fades. And right now it just seems like it fades faster and faster and faster and faster the more advanced that we get and the faster we can change. And he saw that. I think he recognized the final destiny of the wicked that God does not forget and that he will judge. And he even says so in verse 21. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion. What's the word? Forever. Those who are far from you will perish. 
You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. When he calls himself a brute beast, I believe the original Hebrew is saying that I was an idiot. I was saying, God, where's all the good stuff for me? And it was only when he entered into the sanctuary of God, only when he got into the presence of God, only when he got into a service with the people of God did he remember that he didn't need God's blessings when he had God himself. Someone who would counsel him, guide him, be with him, comfort him, no matter what he went through. Like uh, David would say in Psalm 23. All of a sudden, when the psalmist came face to face with the reality of who God is and how he goes beyond the reaches of his life, that he is before time and beyond time, he realized what he had and that he had something better than all the good things that this life can offer. He discovered God, he said. He held my hand, he said. And I experienced the reality of what I gain because of righteousness. It's not stuff from God that I want. It's not blessings from God that I want. I want you. And even when I was a brute beast, you were with me. I had you. See, that's why living for God is the best way to live. Because we get a taste of what eternity will be like. We gain His counsel now. We gain His presence now in limited ways where we can't quite see and can't quite fully understand and grasp. And so the only response is to live by faith. But that faith says that one day we will see what we can't fully understand now, that we will know fully in those days that there is coming an eternity where God will come as the righteous judge of the world, dividing sheep and goats and saying, I knew you. Well done, good and faithful servant. Or saying, depart from me because I never knew you. And he is waiting patiently to give everyone a chance to draw close to him. You see, the success that God wants to give us is not the success that we would define in every other category. Uh, vocational success, financial success, relational success. What he wants to give us is lasting success. Something that goes beyond this life. And the only thing that lasts in eternity is what we do for Jesus. And here's the great thing. We can all make choices to affect eternity. What we do now echoes in eternity. I think that's from a movie. When I was a kid, I used to think fish sticks were great. You could pour them out of a box. They had a picture of a fisherman with a cool hat on, raincoat. 
And you'd pour out these little rectangular squares, or if you know, you could afford them, those triangles. Yeah. And you'd slap them on a cookie sheet or a baking, something, just throw them in the oven, and a few minutes later, they'd come out, and they were great. They were so much fun. You could, you could dip them into any, any kind of sauce you like, ketchup, or you could dip them in something else, and they were all good. And I thought fish sticks were great. But as I got older, I realized that you know, fish sticks aren't really all that great. And do you know why? Because I had real fish. Um, I had swordfish, to be specific. Um, I credit my wife, Krista, for this because it was on our honeymoon that I got to taste swordfish for the first time. We were in Jamaica. It was, it was fresh. It had been prepared fresh. And I still cannot think of a food that isn't part of a cow that tasted the way that did. It's interesting that bad fish tastes fishy. Does that make sense? If you get bad fish, it's got a fish taste. And if you've got a fish taste, you're like, ugh, I am not eating that. That's why people don't like fish oil pills, right? They're supposed to be good for you. They're supposed to give you all the omegas that you need, and yet they taste like fish. But not swordfish. If it's done right, it is just an explosion in your mouth where you wonder, what have I done with the rest of my life up to this point? It was delicious, and it was light, yet it was so flavorful and it just exploded all the way like in your mouth and on your taste buds on your tongue it was just so good and I apologize for doing this before noon <laughs> are you settling for fish sticks or, or swordfish fish sticks of this life yeah they're good in the moment but they don't last and they certainly don't leave a great taste in your mouth long term. Because they don't last into eternity. Are you living the swordfish life? Where you will settle for nothing but the best. And you know who the best is. You see, in the moments when we don't have the reward now, do you know what we gain? God. What would you rather have? God who gives you good things or God? That's what the psalmist came to understand. And he came to understand that we need to keep a long-term outlook when it looks like those who are ungodly are winning, that there's no good to being godly. That wrong is being rewarded, not the righteous. When you feel that and you feel like giving up, remember that you play the long game. Keep a long-term outlook. Live in light of eternity. Can I recommend a couple of ways that we can do that? I think the first is interesting. What changed the psalmist's mind was that he went to church. He showed up in the sanctuary of God, and something changed his mind. I think it's interesting that as the pandemic went on, we not only saw a great resignation of people changing jobs or just quitting their jobs, 
we actually saw a great resignation of church attendance. Church attendance has been in decline for years, but it's interesting that when times got tough, church attendance got lower, not higher, because people went to things that would try to satisfy them to some degree. We saw alcohol use go up, we saw opioid use go up, but not activities of faith. And so can I recommend that you make church a priority? And depending on how church is a priority to you now, that can look a lot of ways. Um, we love having the opportunity to minister to folks online, but online, it's just not the same as being in person. Uh, no one says, hey, did you listen to this new song over and over that I saw a recording of on television? More than they say, hey, did you go to that concert? Were you there? Did you see it live in person? Oh, that's oh. same thing's true with church. Our doors are open. We would love to have you come if you're in the area. And if you're watching from far away, let me encourage you to find a church where you can attend on a regular basis. And if you're already attending a church on a regular basis, congratulations, that's probably the big part in starting a new habit. Can I make a second recommendation? What is regular to you? Might I suggest to you that regular might be at least weekly rather than once a month, twice a month. And when something else comes up, oh, I want to do that. There's nothing wrong with not being in church, the home, your home church on a Sunday. People travel, they visit family, they have opportunities, they've got to get out of town for work. I'm going to be gone next week. Uh, uh, headed out to Crosstalk Global in Kansas. So someone else will be preaching next week. I'm excited for that. Um, but when you do that, if you get a chance to visit a church, then do it. Take some time on vacation and do that. But change what it means to be a regular attender to a weekly attender. And if you're a regular attender by being here week by week already, I think the next thing you can do is begin to engage. Engage with what's happening. Don't just be a participant. Don't just be a spectator who comes. Engage. Engage through giving. Engage through serving. Engage through inviting others. Engage through grouping up. That'd be the first thing I'd recommend is just make church a priority because that's times when we realize, hey, we're not alone, there is a bigger picture, and we gain the help that we need to gain the godly perspective that carries us through those moments when we wonder when godliness is worth it. But secondly, I would recommend this. It's to use the dissatisfaction to root out the idols in your heart. There's a reason why the lure of financial uh, freedom and resources and wealth and health are so attractive. Why? What if God doesn't give those things? Does that mean He doesn't love you? Why do you need that in order to be happy? Why do you need a particular relationship like a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Why do you need a spouse? Why do you need a child? Why do you need those things in order to know that God loves you? 
perchance, it's not always true, but perchance, that the thing that you want the most isn't God. And when you have these moments of dissatisfaction, there are opportunities to bring them to the Lord and surrender them and say, listen, these things are vital. I'd love to have these things, but they're not more important than you. They will never be like you. And as a matter of fact, um, I'm going to ask our uh, elders to come forward and Krista to come on up and join me as we take some time to celebrate communion together. And as we get ready to distribute the elements, what I want to encourage you to do is to simply answer the question before the Lord with the help of the Holy Spirit. Do I want Jesus above all? Am I satisfied with Him? Or is there something that I'd love to have more than Him? And if that's true, if there's something else that you'd love to have more than Him, just like we learned last week, confession is not only good for the soul, it's good for life. And it's a time to be right with the Lord and again put ourselves in a place where we can say with complete honesty, it is well with my soul because all I need for my soul is Jesus. Let's do that. We're going to sing. Krista's going to lead us. I want to give you an opportunity to take some time to ask the Holy Spirit to root out idols in your life and then we'll take communion together.
pray together. Lord, in our hand we hold a symbol of the price that was paid for us to be right with you. The body and the blood of Jesus that was broken and poured out for us. Because there are times, Lord, in our lives when we want something other than you. And we think we know what is better than you. We often long for the gifts. Not a relationship with the giver. But there is nothing like knowing that Almighty God is our Heavenly Father and is with us. Caring for us and providing for us not only in this life but the next life. And any sacrifice that you ask us to make will be no greater than what Jesus was asked to do. And just like you rewarded him for his sacrifice and blessed others because of his sacrifice, so will we. Lord, we thank you for your body that was broken for us and your blood that was shed for us. We confess the idols that we have made of the good things that we want in life. We confess that all we need is you and you can provide everything that we need for success in life. Would you replace those idols? Would you remove them through the power of your Holy Spirit and replace them with Jesus at the center of our lives? We thank him for his sacrifice. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's partake together. Why is living for God the best way to live? Because the benefits are not only in this life, but for all of eternity where we will know him fully. So let's live in light of the eternity that is to come because it is our best life right now.